I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. You're listening to Muses. My name is Lynx, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. You are listening to Muses. We are the podcast all about the incredible women who have greatly influenced music. My name is Lynx. I hope everyone had a great summer. I am back after a much-needed month off, and I'm so excited. For this episode, I was joined by my incredible friend, Lucretia Ty Jasmine. Lucretia is an LA-based artist, writer, and interviewer. She earned her BFA with honors at NYU and her MFA at CalArts. And you can check her pieces online for sites like The Los Angeles Beat and Please Kill Me. Lucretia is also currently working on multiple projects, such as her Groupie Feminism Arts series, which is absolutely incredible. Please go to her website to check that out. And she's also working on oral histories for two mixtape scenes, The Groupie Gospels and Riot Girl, L.A., 1992 to 1995. Lucretia has such a beautiful rock and roll soul, and it was a blast to discuss our mutual passion for the incredible women that we cover here on Muses. You guys are going to love this, and Lucretia will definitely be joining me again soon, so there's plenty more where this came from. I just want to thank Lucretia again for coming on, and please check out her website, Lucretia Ty Jasmine. I put the links in the description, and I hope you all enjoy the episode. Well, Lucretia, thank you so much for being my first official guest. I am so excited for this. I've been looking forward to this for so long. I'm surprised it hasn't happened already, but I feel like it's just fate making it the perfect timing. So thank you. 
you wear so many different hats. Like you're a writer, you're an artist, you're an activist, an interviewer, a music lover, a filmmaker, a professor. Like you do so many different things. There's so much to get into. I would really like to just start though with your origin story. Like what was your childhood like? Was the arts, writing, feminism, all of those things, was that always important to you? How did that come about? You know, it's so... That, I love that question. I love everything you said. And Lynx, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. And I'm just a real fan of the work you've been doing. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the work that you do as well. So thank you. So um, origin story. Holy Manoli. Okay. So I think a love of music and feminism and social activism was part of like my growing up environment. I just think I grew up in that. I was born in 1966. And so I think in the 70s, there was this real feeling that social change could happen through music and through activism. Yeah. It's so exciting, so amazing. I'm not so sure if I feel that same feeling now. I think it takes a lot longer than I think we all thought back then. I think it takes way longer to make the changes we want to see. But my grandmom was an activist and a feminist. My mom is an activist and a feminist. And so I just grew up with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was born in Boston and I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Wow, you've been all over. Yeah. I can't remember Boston though. I was only there for a few months. So I really want to go visit again to see it as an adult. Yeah. I'd love to visit there too. So what kind of music and everything were you passionate about back then? Well, you know, my mom was such a huge influence on me and so was my dad. Because, of course, I was listening to what they were playing. And my mom loved Leon Russell. And I really think Leon Russell, I think he, his music helped us deal with the incredible pain and suffering we were going through in the 70s. My mom and, my mom and dad had a devastating divorce. And when my mom would play Leon Russell music, I could hear it throughout our apartment or our house. Wherever we were, we moved a lot. But every time I heard Leon playing, I knew my mom was in a good mood and it was okay. I love yeah. that. And sometimes I wonder if that's where my obsession with groupies came from, you know? I mean, my mom has a framed photo of Leon. She had posters of Leon. I don't know that I'd call, I don't know if my mom was the kind, my mom wasn't the kind of groupie who went backstage and met the band, but my mom went to every single one of Leon's shows. She would bake food for him, like biscotti, and bring it to like his trailer and hand it to the guy at the door. Like, so, you know what I mean? <laughs> I actually did the same when I was a teenager. Me and my friends would bake cookies for bands that we liked to like get an opening to like introduce ourselves to them. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you got to be creative. You got to think of, you know, interesting ways to capture their attention. But... That's right. Uh, I love that. Super fan. Super fan. Exactly. And then my dad always listened. He always, gosh, I always remember the music still to this day. It was like, I guess, a compilation of music from the 50s. And yeah, the 50s mostly. And I would always hear that. Like when he would, he would pick me up on the weekends and he would always play that in the car. So I think music was a huge part of my life, but a very specific kind of music. It was rock and roll and pop music. Yeah. I think that's what my parents mostly listened to. And then I, of course, when I was 11 and discovered cassette tapes and eight tracks, Oh my gosh, like everything was about taping what was on the radio. Like everything was about listening to the top 40. 
just, I loved music on the radio. Wow. So when did you start attending shows yourself? I think my first concert was Andy Gibb when I was in the sixth grade. Oh, wow. I was in love with Andy. Everyone was. Oh, it's just, <laughs> he was so great. How could we not be? <laughs> but I have to say, though, you know, um, I've thought a lot about like, why wasn't I a groupie? Because I always wanted to be one. And I think there are a few reasons. And I think one of them is access. I was in Louisville, Kentucky during the 70s and 80s. There weren't a ton of concerts going through there, but there were concerts, but they were arena rock concerts. By the time I was going, it was arena rock. Yeah. So, the, so the band on the stage, they looked like, like ants. They were so far away because I was usually way in the back. Mm -hmm. So although when I saw Andy Gibb, I got pretty close. But I think, I, don't, I, I also think um, lack of money. I didn't go to as many concerts as I could have, I think. And then I think um, the person who inspired me the most to love Led Zeppelin and to wish I could be a groupie, I think she went off to juvie when we were 13. <laughs> of course she did. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, I, that, that was my pack, my one yeah. best friend, you know? You so. need a partner in crime. <laughs> you really do. She did all the crime. Right, that's right. <laughs> Although I would get in trouble. I'm not even kidding. She would do the crime, but I would get busted, literally. <laughs> when did you first hear about groupies and everything? Like, how did that even become a thing on your radar? Oh my gosh. Okay, so that's my favorite question in the world. Thank you. Oh, okay, when they first became on my radar, I think was when Pink Floyd's The Wall came out. Maybe I'd heard of groupies before then, but it was that movie, Pink Floyd's The Wall, that made me understand that a groupie was a very specific person who did something really specific, go to shows and hook up with the guys playing the music or yeah. the people on the scene of the music, like the roadies. And, and that just piqued my interest. That became my goal. I remember calling my dad and saying, I want to be a groupie. And he was like, is that your life's goal? And I said, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I had the exact same conversation with my dad too at some point. <laughs> what did your dad say? What did you, what was your dad's reaction? Well, my dad used to run like the first after hours club in Toronto and he would hang out with bands all the times. And he knew all these groupies and he used to tell me stories about how amazing they all were and how awesome like that whole scene was like he was very encouraging about it he was like one day you'll meet the bands and do what you want to do as well wow. yeah wow. He, was, he was great yeah he had a oh. girlfriend who was a groupie for three dog night and she slept with like the entire band apparently and he used to tell me how like fantastic she was so yeah he was always positive. I think there's something really specific about groupies that is not, that is not only sex that oh, yeah. appeals to the musician. And I think that's what gets lost in a lot of discussion of groupies. I mean, like you just said, your dad would say she was fantastic. He's not talking that she's a fantastic lay. Maybe he's including that, but I, I really can tell that he's talking about her being. Yeah. I interviewed this person named Jennifer Precious Finch from L7 and she was, right? Uh, so, so she's a rock star. One of my and heroes. She, 
and she met all kinds of roadies and crew. And, you know, she told me, so she was, let's see, when was she touring and doing all that? Let's say the nineties, I think. So she said that she met roadies who were still talking about cherry vanilla or sweet Connie. Really? Yes. And she said, Jennifer, her precious's theory is that, you know, they're still talking about cherry and precious because there's something about them that's spectacular. It isn't just, I can get sex easily. It's, this is an interesting woman. This is exactly what this podcast is about. It's to show like how fascinating and incredible these women are. And there's a reason why all the bands wanted them around all the time. And like you said, yeah, it's not about sex. Anyone can get sex anytime. It's, it's about the person. Absolutely. And the personality. It's yeah. like, it's like, uh, I just think about that. I think that's another reason I wasn't able to be a groupie is I don't think I felt confident in my ability to be spectacular. You know, I think that was partly it. Cause I do think there's something just unique and one of a kind about yeah. Pe Pamela DuPar, the GTOs, Devin Wilson. Oh my God, all these women. Yeah. And once you start finding out more about them and researching them, it's just, they're, they're so much more fascinating than the rock stars that, you know, you first were attracted to. I remember when I was a teenager and I would look at photos of, I was looking up photos of these rock stars because that was my initial attraction. But by the end of it, I, I was completely obsessed with the women instead. That's how I was. Links. I'm so glad. Okay. Cause that's the second thing that happened. So when I was 14, I was like, okay, dad, I want to be a groupie, which my dad actually, I mean, I think he thought it was funny, but you know, I don't think he thought it was that great an idea. <laughs> I just, but I remember his laughter. I think he thought it was kind of unique. And I think he appreciated that uniqueness yeah. in, in me that I would want that. So, and I still want that. Okay. So all these years later, but then, okay. So then, so my best friend went to juvie. I'd seen song remains the same. I was totally freaked out by Led Zeppelin and Robert Plant and all his blue jean glory up on that big screen. I, I was actually kind of afraid, you know, because although I wasn't a good girl because I cut school all the time, I wasn't a bad girl. You know, I, I wasn't as wild as my friend Amy, but I wanted to be, but I was shy and self-conscious. I've always struggled with my weight. And so, and we live in a culture that's very critical of, you know, bigger women. And so, um, bigger people basically. But so, but then, and so, but I started to associate Led Zeppelin though with like, like, not doing well in school and being wild. And so when I was in high school, I decided I wanted to turn it around. So for a while I tried to dress normal and I tried not to think about wanting to be a groupie and just go to school and just like do my homework and do all that stuff. And so I got into college. One day I was out by the pool. I had found a book at a drugstore back when they sold paperbacks at drugstores. It was Stephen Davis's hammer of the gods, I think. And they, he mentions Pamela DeBoer and Lori Lightning very briefly. And when I saw that, it was like my eyes had the big hearts like the emojis. I was like, oh my gosh, who are Pamela and Lori Lightning? I had to know more and that reactivated my dormant obsession. Yeah. And that, so that's like a two part answer. So that's like my two times that I most got like, who are these women? I'm more interested in them than the men. Yeah. I wanna know, like who these women are, these men like. And back then it was harder to find out who these women were. It's not like you had the internet where you can just Google or even at the libraries, like they're in these books, but they're just such a small like sentence or two. 
I, I remember even like when I was a teenager, like trying to find as much information as possible was difficult. So difficult. And even because back when I read that Hammer of the Gods book, what year was that? That was like 1985, like 1985. No internet, no Google, no Twitter, none of this stuff. So seeing their names in a few sentences was just like a revelation. And yeah. then even in 2006, when, when I was 40 by that time, and my groupie obsession got reignited again by another friend, another conversation, this time about a memoir that my friend told me about by Sorenda Fox Tyler. Yeah. Um, Dream On. Yeah. And so when my friend mentioned that, I got the book and I've had the obsession ever since, like an active, constant, never dormant, new obsession because it's new because I'm older now and I'm seeing it a little bit differently. I don't equate the music with being bad. I don't equate the music with not sticking to my word. I now equate that music with energy, like energy. That's what it is. Anyway, so reading that book and then looking up online about groupies, there was still hardly anything in 2006. It's only been, I think, in the last few years that there's more. Yeah, finally. And I guess it's like after Pamela wrote her first book, I'm with the band, that's when these groupie quote unquote memoirs start coming out more often. And yeah, I, I'm sure you're the same where anytime I see any memoir by any of these women, I, I must have it. I got to devour it like immediately. Same here. I wonder, okay, so what is it? Is there something... What is it, do you think, for both of us, that is the total intrigue? It, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think a lot of it probably, for me, has to do with the fact that music is so deeply important to me. And I'm, I'm not a musician. Uh, I'm a passionate music lover. And learning that there are other ways to be a participant in that passion that isn't, you know, picking up an instrument. I think that was a huge thing for me and why I gravitated toward being a groupie and being fascinated with these women. And like you said, just these unbelievable personalities. And I just definitely like a super shy kid growing up awkward. I'm, I've always been like insecure about everything, but I've never wanted to be that way. So I've like really made a point all my life to like put myself in situations that in, inside I'm like freaking out, but like, it's like a fake it till you make it type of thing. And all these women just like went for it. So I was like, I, I gotta just do it. Like I gotta try. Right. Yeah. They're just such an inspiration. Like for sure. I wouldn't have accomplished half of what I have if it weren't for like all these inspiring women that. I just have, I'm trying to emulate at this point. It reminds me of something Pamela DeBarro said. Like she talked about a couple things, but knocking on the door, the backstage door to a venue in Hollywood, and then also being backstage with the Rolling Stones. I think a couple times she was kind of freaked out, but she just, it was like, you deserve to be here. I deserve to be here. Yeah. I am as good as these people. I, I am worthy, you know? Yeah. And I want to be here and I got to make it that happen, right? No one else is going to make it happen for me. I got to get out there. I'm going to make it happen. That also reminds me of Cherry Vanilla with her cards where she would give men those cards, like 
you're beautiful, I'm beautiful, call me. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> she made it happen, you know? She, she did. didn't wait for them to ask her out. She was like, I'm going for it all the time. And yeah, sometimes you might not get a call, but most of the time you do, right? So. And she said what was so great about that is she could give the car, but then run off. Yeah. So, then, so, you know, she like made her move, but then she could bail. So if he didn't call or she didn't call, okay. You know, she just did it anyway. Yeah. It's interesting what you're saying, because I knew there was something deeper. Like I've been, like, I'm still formulating my thesis about feminism and music. And I think, and groupies specifically, I think it has to do with what we're talking about. It has to do with self-esteem. And I think the conundrum is that some would say, how can it be self-esteemable to have sex with people you don't know who may never call you again, who might be using you? How can that, how can it give you self-esteem if you know people are going to slut shame you or put you down for being a sexual being? So people could say that, but I think you and I are saying something else, which is that to be able to like to follow your heart's desire. And when I say heart, I mean it the way Gloria Steinem talks about the heart, which is as, you know, a prehistorical symbol of female procreativity. Mm-hmm. And so that means that it's usually women who are the groupies going for what and who they want without having to be married, without having to feel trapped, without having to be afraid that you're doing something wrong with your body. And then also, I think we're talking about the kind of self-esteem that will help you do what you want with your life. Yeah. That's what Morgana Welch said, actually, the LA queen, one of the LA queens, she said that being a groupie helped give her confidence to go after the things she wanted to do, like be a coder or a computer programmer or a disc jockey. Once you put yourself in those positions and you're going after things that you want that maybe you know you never thought that you could obtain or end up in situations like you said like I want I'm worthy of being here I belong here that's like such a huge thing for all women especially and women in music too from back in the 60s obviously they were cutting a place for themselves in this industry that was obviously dominated by men, right? But they were in charge. That's right. You have a quote on your website that I really love that is, I want to be the author of my own desire. And I love that. Like, I love that. And like, it, that's like so profoundly deep in like so many different ways. And I feel like that applies here too, where it's like, I want to, I want to be the one making the decisions for myself. I want to be the one in charge of my sexual drive where you know who I'm sleeping with when why it doesn't matter the reasons as long as I'm the one making them that's exactly right you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything you might shop while working eating or even listening to this podcast and however you shop we all know and love the thrill of the hunt but do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. 
And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Let's just go back to the 80s for a minute. You ended up at NYU, right? For film? Yep. And you were very much involved in the Riot Girl movement. And I grew up not in that movement, but watching that movement and it was so important for me I just wanted to know like what was your experience like in New York and working in film for a bit and you also had a zine right Mm -hmm. a few tell me about your Riot Girl days well I'm really glad you asked that because the segue to NYU and Riot Girl actually is totally related to the author my own desire because when I was in film school at NYU I learned about subjectivity and objectivity in writing and in films. And usually the female is objectified. The mm-hmm. subject is the subject is the male. He's like projecting the narrative. It's his story. It's about, you know, him fumbling through the film trajectory. And then the woman is like the wallpaper and like the object and the beauty. And it's where we get visual pleasure. And we audience members may or may like who are we when we're watching it? Do we become male? Do we become is it heterosexual? So, but basically it's the female body that's objectified. Yeah. So when I write, I want to author my own desire. You said it perfectly. It's like, I want to be in charge of what's happening with my body. Yeah. I just still get so upset. Like, like today, because just last night I was watching this really good mini series, but the camera work was constantly objectifying the female body which by the way, was, you know, thin and white and very, a narrow body. And it's a narrow definition of beauty. And I'm tired of being traumatized by that. I can't believe it's 2021 and that hasn't changed. This miniseries just came out. It's like, it's all these sex scenes, but it's her body that's the site of sexual visual pleasure. Like his body's clothed. And when he's not clothed, he looks kind of schlumpy. He's not posed all provocatively. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I know it's infuriating. I'm so infuriated by it. When will it end? When more female filmmakers are given a chance, right? Like, that's the thing. There's got to be a quality in film for that kind of shit to end. Or maybe when we take the chance, sometimes I feel like we need to, like, come up with our own film festival and our own 
like you're doing with this podcast, just our own avenue of, of exposure, like yeah. in our, on our own terms. Mm-hmm. But so NYU was awesome. It kind of ruined my life and improved my life because it opened my eyes to all this stuff. All this stuff that had been bothering me and affecting me negatively, I now knew why. I understood. I had a language for it. It was the language of film and the language of feminism. So NYU was awesome. I can't believe I even got into that school. I'm just, I'm so glad I did. And um, I mean, it didn't make me rich and famous, but that's not NYU's fault. And maybe rich and famous isn't the be all end all. When I graduated, I had such a critique of hierarchy and uh, just any system of exploitation, which is pretty much capitalism. But even when there are other social systems, it's still exploitation and cruelty. So I've really struggled with that all these years, how to earn a living, how to just be in this planet, how to be fair and loving and kind and everyone can have fun. It's really, it weighs so heavily because it isn't happening yet. But anyway, that was what got me into Riot Girl because I had been looking for something that had that sensibility, which I found out was basically a punk rock feminist sensibility, a Riot Girl sensibility. And so I discovered, well, my best friend, Denny Bird, discovered Riot Girl for me and then told me about it. Um, and I had already made zines though at NYU. I had made zines about a fe- like a feminist critique of music and film. I made like nine of them. And then a few years later, realized there was this whole zine culture. I didn't even know what I was doing was called zines. I guess I called them newsletters. Anyway, Riot Girl was awesome. I think though that Riot Girl, like so many things, I just feel like it's kind of like language. It's like we're aspiring to something, but then there's the flesh reality of it. Like we're trying to get there. It's like trying to come. It's like, <laughs> it's like it can be so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. And there's like ups and downs along the way. Right. <laughs> Distractions. Yes. <laughs> Was it at NYU that you started also doing your, I don't know how to describe them, your art pieces? My assemblages? Yes. You know, I don't think I had started assemblages then. You know, it's so funny. I think my grandparents would say I'd started art assemblages when I was a kid because of the way I decorated my room. But truly my art assemblages, my groupie feminism art series, I've had that idea in my head for about 12 years. And it was this year during the pandemic that I made it happen. Like I've got almost all the pieces done. It's so good. It's so perfect. Like, uh, I love it so much. It's given me so much happiness to be able to do it. And I know a lot of people say that I'm so thrilled I got to do this. No, I really mean it though, because this pandemic has been very scary. And so I've been real, and I didn't have a job. So I was really glad because I, I didn't, couldn't go to my job anymore because the pandemic shut it down. So I just thought, well, I'm going to make this groupie feminism art series. I had actually already started doing it before the pandemic because I'm getting older. And I just thought, how long am I going to keep, I got to just make it happen. Yeah. Because I've had it in my mind for so long. So although I was doing different art projects when I was in film school, specifically films, and then after that zines, or while I was doing that zines, and then I did other forms of creative expression, these art assemblages, I think these are the first ones I've really done the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. They're so good. Like I thought for sure you 
I mean, I guess you have been doing them all your life in a way, but yeah, I love them. I love them so much. <laughs> I'm so glad, you know, because they really, they've just been on my mind for so long, like for so long. You and need to put them out like an art show, like they need to be displayed. Everyone needs to see them. Oh, thanks. Oh, I hope, I hope somebody, I hope so. I'd love it if I could get them shown at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. Would, That's where they belong. Absolutely. I would love that. I would love that so much because it's feminist. It's about women. It's by a woman. Yeah. I mean, I just have them like right behind me. There's one of them, that door, which is called a door. That was actually the first idea I had for an art assemblage was this door. And basically it was inspired by an interview I, I read with this musician, Jarbo. And she said that when she was at a hotel, there was this metal band staying there. Like she's in, she was in the band, The Swans. So the Swans were on tour. They were at a hotel. And there was this metal band filled with like long haired guys. And she said the groupies would leave all these notes on the metal band's doors. And I just love the idea of notes on a hotel room door. And so I thought, I'm just going to gather materials that I think a groupie would put on a door, what I would put on a door. Yeah. And then I, and I wanted a hotel room door so badly, like an original door. And then years after I had this idea that Chelsea Hotel was auctioning off their doors. And so... I spent my actual, my mortgage payment, I spent it on the door. Like I didn't, I spent my whole, like I didn't have enough, I just, I can't tell you enough about how, how much art costs money. And I, it just costs so much money to make art. What a piece of history though. Yeah. I don't regret it. Yeah. I just don't regret it at all. And um, that's that. So yeah, thank you for asking about it. I feel sort of self-obsessed talking about myself. Thank you. Well, I've been dying to ask you all these questions for so long. So thank you for uh, indulging me and giving me answers and everything. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're welcome. And another thing I think you'll appreciate is like all the items I put on the door, they're not actually notes. What they are are objects from say different hotels I went to that have rock star cred, like the Sunset Marquee, their note paper. Or I'd find like a bill, like a little cafe check that you'd get the hotel room coffee shop at say the riot house. And then other fun stuff like glittery stuff or a rhinestone string from my grandmom just because it's glamorous that she gave me when I was 11. So stuff like that. Uh, it's like, <laughs> it's a magical rock and roll piece of art now. Like that, that's so clever. All of your pieces are just not just clever, but like very much like thought provoking too. Thank you. You put, you can tell you put a lot into it and like a lot of thought into your work. Thank you, Lynx. That means a lot to me. I want to talk a bit about your writing because that's like a huge thing with you. When did your focus sort of begin to go towards writing? And were you, were you always a writer as a kid as well? I've always been a writer. I think it's because my Jupiter is in Gemini. I've given a lot of thought to that. And I think that must be why. I started writing as, as soon as I could write, I was writing diary keeping constantly but yeah. consistently once I was 14 my granddad gave me a diary when I was 14 and after that I've kept a diary ever since I was a real fan of Jackie Collins novels when I was a teenager I've been I've been rereading her books now at the age of 55 and I'm troubled by some of the representations of people of color and gender bending and some sexual practices I'm troubled by how they're presented in the books but when I was 15, those books, I loved how escapist they were, but also how informed they seemed. And so I knew I wanted to write 
but I still wasn't doing it yet. Like I wrote several short stories as a teenager. None of them got published. I sent them to 17 magazine. None of them got published. I did get them published in our school paper, but you know, we all were putting out the paper. So it wasn't like a big thing. So I was writing on and off through then, but when I was 33 in 1999, I had yet another minimum wage job that hadn't worked out. And I was talking with Denny Bird, my best friend. And I said, I've got to do something with my life. I can't seem to find a meaningful job. I can't seem to find a way to earn a living that's good. That's enough money. I have to start doing something. I think I'm gonna start writing, like for seriously. That's when I started doing it. I mean, I'd always been writing, always knew I could write, thought I should write, but it was when I was 33, that autumn, I was like, okay, this is it. And that's when I started just setting myself goals. I'm gonna write about this. Now I'm gonna write about this. And this was not even getting anything published. This was just me saying, I'm gonna write about the time I saw somebody from college and felt judged. I'm gonna write about the time a boy didn't call me. I'm gonna write about the time I was in love with Andy Gipp. I'm gonna write about the time I was in the Kiss Army. Like I just made these goals and I did it. And I just consistently cranked it out and also decided I was going to write a memoir. And so I just did that every day, like clockwork, did my writing. And then it was time to start sending stuff out a few years later. And then I got a couple of publication credits. And so I'd always felt incomplete that I hadn't gotten my master's because I came out to LA to get my master's, but wasn't ready. And so I thought I'll apply to a writing school. So that's when I got a degree in creative writing. But links, you know, I think with writing for me, writing, I'm always trying to figure out a way to earn a living doing something that's meaningful and ethical and fun. Very difficult for me to find that. Yeah, that's a huge thing for every artist, really. So challenging. So writing for me has not brought me in enough money to live on, but I really believe, I'm sorry. Writing has really helped me deal with how hard it is to be in the world of humans and how to to deal with being alive. It's a release of emotion. It's a way to process emotion. It's a way to understand yourself better. I feel like everyone could benefit from writing down their feelings and writing down um, things from their past and stuff and just like seeing it in a different perspective or, you know, focusing on it when you don't normally, you know, focus on certain things. It is a form of therapy, really. It changes the story. There have been so many painful stories I've written about that are real stories that have happened in my life, but the act of writing them has created a new story of it, which yeah. is the story, which is the story of my writing about it and me feeling good as I write about it. Yeah. And you've been published like many, many times since you started two books in particular that we've talked about on the podcast, Let It Bleed, Pamela DeBar's book, you're in that, uh, Women Who Rock, Evelyn McDonald. I interviewed her. She was great. And that book is just such a fabulous, everyone should buy that book. It's so good. It's a resource, isn't it? Oh, it really is. I Every time I'm doing an episode almost, I'm, I'm like going through it half the time. Like there's women in there that I, I can take out pieces and you did multiple pieces, but I remember that you did the GTO one, right? Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> they couldn't have picked anyone better. And you know what? Thank you. Links, going back to what you said earlier about self-esteem. Okay. So 
Evelyn McDonald asked a bunch of her writer friends, you know, send me a list of 10 people who are women or groups fronted by women or all women you want to write about for this book. I'm going to edit Women Who Rock. And so I was like, gee, who do I want to pick? So I really thought for weeks, like, who are the 10 groups or people who really influenced me for real? And then I also posted a, a query on Facebook, like, who influenced you? And Pamela DeBar popped on my wall and said, girls together outrageously are GTOs. And I thought, you know what? Links, Pamela was promoting her band. And see, I grew up thinking it's bad manners to self-promote. Women have grown up thinking we're not supposed to self-promote. I couldn't even say the word I for years. I felt like it was so not good to say I. So I really think about that a lot with Pamela because I think, you know what? You know, she's, there's nothing wrong with that. And that gave me the confidence to pitch that to Evelyn. And Evelyn, thank goodness for her vision said yes, because she had to approve it. So she approved it. And then I got to write about it. Thank goodness. And now the GTOs are in that book. Because see, Ugh. I think the GTOs are so important, but they get dismissed. Oh, yeah. And for sure they belong in there. Absolutely. Yes. That's an interesting thing, too, because I find that happens a lot when these women put out their memoirs, where half of the people reviewing them will be judgmental and be like, they did it for money or there's always like a negative for them telling their own story. Like you shouldn't self-promote. Like, why are you talking about yourself? Like it's a negative thing, even though there can be like 20 books about these rock star guys and they'll devour all of those, you know, no problem. Right. But anytime a woman is like, here, this is me. I'm putting this out there. You do get that backlash. Isn't it interesting? It's so fascinating. Yeah. And that, probably also has a lot to do with how groupies went from the 60s of being loved and respected and you know on the cover of Rolling Stone as a positive thing and then when Pamela put out her book in the 80s and everything the the word groupie and all of that kind of became this muddled negative um, like slut shaming like all of that kind of came in then right? Well I think the term groupie when it first came out I think at first, I don't know that it was negative, but it quickly became negative. Yeah. And I think there are groupies today who identify as groupies who did not identify as groupies then because groupies were considered you know, low class. And I say that phrase low class with an awareness that you know I don't even believe in hierarchies. So I just wanna say that. But I just think that term was perceived as a certain kind of class, which of course is somebody who has sex because that's considered low class and it's a woman. So I don't think the term was actually even a compliment, but I think what you and I links are seeing with these women, Cherry Vanilla, the GTOs, Devin Wilson, these women who were around them, they were almost equal to these men. It was, it was like a glimpse. It was like a move towards, it was like almost getting there to creative, reciprocal, mutual relationships. It was almost there, but then it switched in the seventies. So I think the term groupie was already a put down by the seventies. Yeah. And then I think it's, it became a put down. I don't know. It struggled to be not a put down. I think Pamela's book actually has helped maybe give the G word a little more respect, but I think it, as you pointed out though, it revealed more criticism of that term. What I'm trying to say is I don't know if that term has ever been fully a compliment yet. We're yeah. There's still a ways to go there. There's always yeah. going to be. Yeah. Especially if when you're talking about like women and sexuality, there's always going to yes. be people who 
you know, have something negative. And I, and I also think there's sometimes something negative about being a fan. I think people perceive fans. I mean, I was just reading a biography of a famous band, a very successful band, and they called the fans punters, which I think is an insult. It's like, talk about biting the hand that feeds you. Right? It's such a bizarre thing to put down. And that happens a lot with like fangirls, like teenage girls who really like really help shape and run the music industry when you think about it. Yet they're always treated like these silly girls, right? So interesting you said that because really Don Berrigan, who put like put out Star Magazine, the groupie magazine in the early 70s, he's the one who explained to me how it worked back then, which was fans would call into the radio station, request the song, and that's what gets that song played. It gets played over and over, and that's what gets that musician popular. Well, it's the fans calling in and requesting the song. Yep. And today you have these girls who run TikTok, who run Instagram, who are constantly promoting their favorite bands and they're not getting paid or anything. It's just, they're, they're so passionate and they love them and everyone else is seeing that content and all these bands are getting, you know, free marketing from their fans. That's, that's so interesting. I wonder what that is about how if you're female, like if you're doing the housework, somehow the housework doesn't count as labor. If you're having sex, somehow you're a slut. And if you're a fan and promoting and being loving and adoring, somehow you're trivialized. Now, how is all that? Good question. <laughs> Come on, everybody. Yeah, yeah, wake up. Come on. We've got to smash the patriarchy, baby. Uh, we're, we're trying. We're, yeah. We're getting there. This is why I love your podcast so much because you doing it alone and also when you did this podcast with Shanti, I've always thought how deeply it's like a trifecta. It's like a triple threat. It's like a triple whammy. It's like you're both women talking about books you've read written by women about their lives and music. So it's reading, writing, talking that yeah. you women are doing about women. Yeah. That's powerful. That's, it what's is. Gonna, that's what changes everything. This is what it's all about. And it's interesting because I feel like the older I've gotten, at least, the more you understand that and the more you understand as a woman, you have to support other women. You have to constantly promote and build up other women because it helps all of us. Like none of us are going to smash the patriarchy alone. We all have to continually, like you said, also like build our own platform carve out our own space that's what we got to do that's the only way that's what I think too you are also a professor like you teach I did teach art history and creative writing and aesthetics for 10 years I did that for 10 years did you like that I loved it that was like that was one of I did work for a pretty the company I didn't love so much but the classroom and my students and the course content I adored yeah. Yeah. I love that. Writing about art and teaching about writing about art and how language can help you express what you see in art and how language can help you explain your own art. That was so freaking cool. I love that. Uh, and I love how you went from giving yourself these deadlines and writing yourself and building that up to teaching other people how to write and how to build themselves up and how, how to put it themselves out there. That's so full circle. 
That's interesting. I never had thought, I've never thought of that. Links, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. But after I got laid off from that job, I then went back to my library job, which is being a clerk. I'm the one who works at the CERC desk, but I'm not doing that now because of the pandemic. Hopefully soon. Yeah. So when did you start interviewing all the groupies that you found out about and loved? Because you do that too. Well, funny you should ask. It was um, about a year after I became a full-time professor. Like that year, I think I realized that year that job wasn't going to be what I wanted. I thought it was going to be something more than what it was. And so I knew I needed to do something else. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to call my favorite groupie, one of my favorite groupies. I'm going to call her and see if she'll let me interview her. I was so scared to call her. And so I was just going to do one. I was just going to interview one groupie and have one zine about her. Just one cassette tape, one zine about the groupie who, like when I was 14 and I pictured being a groupie, the image I had in my head was of how this groupie, it turned out, actually looks. So when I actually ended up seeing her, I just thought, oh my gosh, that's the vision I had when I was 14. So she's the one I called. And um, so intimidating. Um, <laughs> but it started the whole thing going because after that interview, I thought I'm going to interview someone else. And so I just kept interviewing until I interviewed. Just now it's just this zine, this mixtape zine is way bigger. It's like a phone book now. It's just too huge, actually. Yeah. It, the groupie gospels. Is that what it's yeah. going to be? Uh, yeah. Perfect, perfect name. Yeah. I've seen a list of, you know, all the women that you've talked to and also, you know, you've interviewed some for please kill me and things like that. So uh, I, in awe and I understand that feeling of being nervous and like asking and then when they say yes you're like even more nervous but like (laughs) excited and you're like oh my god like is that gonna happen now like and then talking on the phone with them or in person just like it's still scary it's still intimidating yeah I swear I get more intimidated by talking to all the women that we have than I have ever been meeting a musician now why is that I guess because they are like my actual heroes and the musicians are just like, I'm just like a super fan, I guess. Right. Like I'm just so much more passionate about the women. It's just so exciting. And it's so exciting to hear their stories and to hear women telling their own stories as opposed to, again, like reading in a book written by a man where they're like a footnote in it or whatever. Like I just love that they're the ones sharing what they want to share. And it makes me feel so good. And I'm sure it does you too, being able to be a part of helping them have a voice and share their story as well. Like I get so excited and it makes me feel so good to know that they get something out of it too. Links, tell me what, so, and you probably already answered this question for me, um, but tell me again, if you did. So what is it that appeals to you about the women who were with musicians. What is it that you're passionate about? I think when I started being obsessed with musicians, it was because they were upfront. They were what you saw. And then when I started to see photos of these women beside them, I was like, well, I want to be the woman beside them. Like, what's so great about this woman? Like, how did she get there? Like, why is she important? And then when you learn about them and then you realize, oh, like, they're the inspirations behind the music. They're dressing them. Like they're helping shape pop culture more, in my opinion, than the men are. The men are just the model, basically, right? They're 
so important and they're like all the things behind the scenes and also just being a woman and knowing how often our stories are overlooked like you always knew even when you found out they're amazing you're like they're even more amazing than you know because they haven't shared their story yet or they haven't had the opportunity to and yeah I feel like I just began to realize these women are what really shapes culture and music history and things like that of course the musicians are incredibly talented and they're putting out the music and everything but I'm just more interested, I guess, in the inspiration behind it and all of the behind the scenes stuff than I am at this point in my life of the rock star in in front. Yes. And I relate. And it reminds me so much. See, I don't know if you and I or anybody would consider Betty Davis a groupie, but she is, I don't know if you and, have you all already covered Betty Davis in music? I haven't, but like, she's on my list for the fall. Oh my God. Okay. Oh, goddess. Because... She is exactly like what you just said so well. She exactly demonstrates what you just said because she introduced Miles Davis to Jimi Hendrix and it influenced Miles's look, his next album. It expanded his musical horizon and his fashion sense being introduced to Jimi Hendrix. And Betty Davis is the one who did that. Yeah, and that happens so often. And then the media is the one capturing all these men who have been inspired by these women. And then everyone in the world, all the fans are taking their cues from these people, not realizing it's like, you know, a couple people behind them that are really the ones helping to shape everything. I think people just immediately give credit to the face and the face for a long time has been the, the men. True. That's true. Links. That's so interesting. This whole topic is so interesting too. Like it's, I'm happy to use the word groupie and I'm totally proud to be a groupie, but I understand why some of those women back then, especially didn't want that attached at all because of how often that just minimizes you to this sexual object. Like you have nothing else to offer. And that's just simply not true. Like I I can't recall any story of any, groupie, muse, wife, girlfriend, whatever you want to call, where I'm not completely fascinated with them or learn like all these like really cool things. Like none of them are like, oh yeah, okay. Like they're all like badass and amazing. Even though, even if you know, even if you kind of know, like sometimes I know, oh yeah, I know she and I wouldn't really get along. Maybe we wouldn't be friends. But even with that, like I just read a bio of someone the other day and I thought, you know, she and I would never be friends, but I thought, She's cool. Like there's something about her that's so badass. And I just thought, I'm so glad I have this book. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, just any woman doing exactly what they want to do and defying all of the obstacles along the way, which as women, we all know the obstacles. We all come across them on a daily basis still. Like that in itself is just so important to praise and I'm glad people are finally starting to realize that. I feel like in the past five to 10 years, like there really has been a shift and I'm sure like me too. And all of that has helped that too, where it's like, yeah, let's, let's focus on women for once. Like let's, let's get their stories out. Like let's hear them. What did they go through? You know, how are they feeling? What did they influence all of that? And what are they creating and doing and making? And 
just like what are what are like what are they up to like what are they doing it's like I think that's why so I'm trying to get a book deal for this other book and I think one of the reasons I really want to make this write this book like of course one reason is because it's about groupies and I just know I'd have fun writing about it researching it and writing about it like I just want to do that with my time yeah but the other reason is exactly what you just said so clearly that I want people to know more about the women plain and simple like again that's what this podcast is for it's just let's have the men sit down just for now let's hear the woman you know we know the men's story we know all these rock stars every I mean I read their biographies too I read their memoirs I I love them in no way is this like a put down of them obviously but yeah it's just it's time it's time now and then I also think there's something else I just wanted to mention is about I love those musicians too and I read their memoirs I just love their memoirs also it's just about having diversity that yeah. word it's just diversity plain yeah. and simple yeah we're not trying to take your space we're trying to share the space <laughs> that's right that's exactly it links yeah we're coming up on an hour now and I feel like I could talk to you forever you gotta Likewise. come back on like I'd love it this was great other than the groupie gospels this memoir that or are you, you're still working on your memoir? Well, the memoir I wrote, but of course, you know, I'm not so sure. I don't know. I'm having mixed feelings about all these, about, I love memoirs. I think what I want to focus on is getting a book deal for um, the golden era of groupies, 1965 to 1978. Because I really think that was the golden era. Okay. And I also think it's when it perfectly shows how women were almost equal to the men and then it changed which reminds me like I do I am curious like why it is that adoration and sexuality are so put down like what is so wrong with being sexual and adoring it's a fascinating thing too because you're taught like you're supposed to be beautiful you're supposed to be sexual and sexy to like a degree and then if you step out of line to this narrow thing then you're called all sorts of things right and you're looked at completely differently it's there's so much to unpack there it's very rigid it's like society and how we all get along and what we're allowed to be and do I've really been thinking about that a lot especially with this pandemic it's like everybody it seems not everybody but it seems that humans have a very difficult time letting people be individual yeah and then respecting their choices seems very i don't know what is up with human beings but so but it's a mess it's a total mess but marilyn french one of my favorite writers said that um i saw her in an interview once and i'm totally paraphrasing her but she said what else are you gonna do you gotta figure out how to navigate all this what else are you gonna do she had a cigarette she's like what else are you gonna do Uh, Just going back to the golden era of groupies, I think that's such a fabulous idea, especially also because those women are a little older now and they have a perspective of, you know, decades to look back on how they were feeling at that time, how maybe uh, it shifted, you know, how they can reflect and look back. It's just, there's, it's so fascinating. And it's, I feel like it's so important to capture those stories while we can I do too oh my gosh 
while we're all still alive. Yeah. And, you know, not everyone made it, but a lot are still here. And that's fantastic. And yeah, even the ones who've written memoirs in like the 80s and the early 90s, I'm sure upon reflection, you know, there's been decades since. So I'd love to hear more of what they're thinking and how and how they reflect on that uh, on everything that happened to them I'm still trying to get my favorite one of my favorite groupies she's one of my top favorites and my very first one who I was so scared to I want to follow up with her because I want to know how she feels since me too like how does she look at oh links I'd be so happy but she's like a butterfly you know, and I can see why this is probably why the rock stars loved her because <laughs> it's just like, there she goes. Okay. Yeah. I, caught, I caught a glimpse. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you get. That's yeah. it. But what a moment, but what a moment, you know? Yeah. And you did get her. You did get her. And um, what was the other thing I just wanted to mention real quick, just about, I forget what, but, um, oh yeah, okay, so, and I'm hoping that in um, the golden era of groupies, I include a playlist and I list all these songs because links, here's the other thing. I've researched a ton of songs and made this huge playlist of all the songs that are about or by or mentioned groupies. And I feel like it's more evidence of what you said about the influence that groupies have. I mean, these people are writing songs about them. Yeah. I'd love to have a song about me. It isn't everybody who has a song written about them. And I've got a ton. Not all of them are flattering. Not all of them are nice. Most of them are. Yeah. So that's more evidence. And a lot of those songs greatly influenced later musicians and people in general. So right. they're constantly sh- helping to shape pop culture. That is right. It isn't like a one-off. Those songs are still being played so those women are still influencing culture yeah. and us, all of us who consume culture or live, move through culture. Yep. And even just like by the photographs that people see now of them back then, like on Instagram and TikTok and all those places, you have all these beautiful women who are obsessed with like the 60s and 70s and all of their style inspirations are these women. So they are still also shaping like fashion culture and like everything that they're they're muses forever that is so true and even ones who might have been a strict quote-unquote groupie are now uh, muses because of this that is so true so interesting links this is so you've really i can see how much you've thought about this you have a real feminist sensibility but i think because you're a few generations away from second wave feminism your feminist sensibility is not shackled by what shackled them. You, I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say. Yours feels more fun and more, yours feels light. Yours feels light, but still serious. Yours feels, I mean, I'm not, I mean, the second wave feminists were completely, we had to have that. We had to have that. I just think what's come from, since then really it's fascinating to me because it's almost it's like now there's more more color is what I think and that's probably from you know women again sharing more getting the opportunity to hear each other and be there for one another in a bigger sense so 
hopefully it just keeps growing and I'm, I'm so happy right now. This was such a great conversation. I'm so glad, Ling. Same here. Thank you so much for this. I feel kind of self-involved all about no. me. So thank you for the chance to just blab about myself. <laughs> of course. Oh my gosh. And just having the great conversation about all these women. All the women who have written those books, when you said that, would have been like, stop that. You're not self-involved. Share your story. You know, that's true. That's true. And you're part of the story too. Thank you, Link. So are you. Yay. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Lucretia. And I'm going to post all of your stuff. Everyone can check it out. I'm going to also make sure I post a link to the amazing group assemblages. That's just so good. I'll have everything up there so people can easily find you. And um, yeah, we'll talk soon. Links, thank you so much. This means a lot to me. Thank you. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by Links O'Leary. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.